0: This is an ABC podcast. Bill Cruz began his working life as an electrical engineer. His dad was an engineer too, and he always wanted to please the old man who tried all his life to pull himself and his family up from dire poverty. And then Bill decided to give it all away, and he joined the ranks of the poor and disenfranchised. He began working at the Wayside Chapel, in Sydney's King's Cross, and then he became a minister in the Methodist Church, which later became the Uniting Church. The church asked him if he wanted to be sent somewhere easy or hard. And Bill said hard, and so he took on a parish in Ashfield, where there were problems of homelessness and drug abuse. And so Bill set up a soup kitchen, the loaves and fishes free restaurant which has given over three million meals to poor and homeless people. And he did it with the proceeds of a horse race. He's helped hundreds of kids off the streets and taught them to read. Bill Cruz has spent most of his life in the difficult places with marginalised and abandoned people. He's now in his 70s, but he keeps open the possibility of change and renewal. Just a few years ago, he had a transformative experience in the notorious jungle camp of Calais in northern France. Bill wrote a book that is part memoir, part a meditation on how to live an upright life, and it's called 12 Rules for Living a Better Life. I spoke with Bill Cruz last year in the midst of the COVID lockdowns. Hello, Bill. Welcome back to Conversations. Thank you, mate. Thank you very much. What are you seeing with the pandemic at the moment and how it's affecting homeless people in your area?
1: It's changed lives completely. Um, I'm spending a lot of time trying to keep people safe, trying to keep people socially distanced. We've done a lot of testing here. Um, We give out vaccines to the homeless. Just It gets down to the most basic thing of life, trying to keep people alive, because many of the people we see have three major illnesses. So if they catch COVID, they're gonna die. So that weighs heavily on, on what we do. But the other side of that is society is really vulnerable to them because if they get it, because they wander around and they don't follow rules and all of these sorts of things, they'll spread it so that it's a living example of how, as human beings, we're all vulnerable to one another.
0: So much of the COVID response presumes that people have all got iPhones or Android phones and a Medicare card and a mailing address. What does this tell you about the disconnect between the governed
1: and the people who govern them, I want to build? It's always been that way, Richard, always been that way. The, the homeless and the bottom of the barrel people, um, they never read street signs or, or things like that because they never apply to them so that they're always the ones who miss out. They're always the ones left on the the side of the road. They're always the ones who somebody will suddenly say, oh, we've forgotten about. They're the forgotten people and they're the overlooked people. And um, this just highlights what's happened throughout the whole of human history. You know, George
0: Megalogenis, when he came on recently, said that COVID has kind of been like a heat-seeking missile, finding the weaker points in our economy and our society. I mean, in the past, I suppose it's easy for governments to shrug their shoulders at the homeless and disenfranchised, but they really can't with COVID because it leads to community spread if you have huge segments of society, unvaccinated, not cared for.
1: Exactly. And much of my time has spent advocating for them and saying precisely that, and trying to convince people for that. I remember right at the beginning of this pandemic, I was ringing up the health department saying, these people have got to be looked after. Tell me what to do. And you'd ring all the health authorities and everything and the typical answer you get is, oh, that's outside of my pay scale. (laughs) (laughs) So you'd have to do it yourself. It's a classic example of the professionalising of caring for people. People like to care for their own class, if you get it that way or whatever, and they don't think about the groups below them. And it's always been thus, always, always.
0: I was talking about how you've always been wanting to go into the difficult places. And your book starts with a story about a low point in your life. In 2015, when you were in London, why was this a low point this time in London?
1: Oh, my marriage, my second marriage had busted up quite a few years before, and the relationship with my kids was tense, all of those sorts of things, all of that. And I was feeling pretty terrible, you know, terrible person. And um, there's always build a brand, you know. People look on build a brand and this and that and the other, but often there's build a person who struggles at times. And I was struggling with that, just doing build a brand. That's what I was doing. And I was in London and I had one day left and I thought, I don't want to waste this day and ended up going to the jungle in Calais Um, and that's where all the refugees were congregating, trying to get to that bastion of freedom, England, who said you can't come. (laughs) And I was with them and they were people just like me trying to, Build a new life, you know, and I can't talk of how terrible it was there for people. It's the worst refugee situation I'd ever seen.
0: And why? What was wrong? What was what was going on there that uh, made a place so troublesome and dangerous?
1: Well, it was an old it was an old asbestos dump <laughs> that had become a floodplain, on which was living 20,000 people. No amenities, really, anything. The French authorities didn't want them there. (laughs) You had to go through lines and lines of buses filled with armed counter-terrorism police, all of that sort of stuff. So it was an awful place. It was where the forgotten of the world were. Where did they come from, Bill? What kind of places did they come from? The Middle East, Africa, you name it. There was every nation on earth there and every religion on earth there as well. Every, every persecuted minority group you could think of, whether it was because of class or of religion or of um, what, money, whatever. A lot of them males, young males, because the family had put together any money they could so that the fate of the family back home rested on these young males. And they were very, very aware of that responsibility and so desperate. And I've always been a great great fan of the 12-step movement and found a sign which said NA, Narcotics Anonymous meeting tonight. Did that mean
0: there was a fair few drugs circulating through the camp?
1: No, these were people trying to get off it, yes, but a lot of them had been addicted to drugs because there's nothing much to do. And these people were really struggling trying to get off it. And so I go into this group and sitting in the group there was probably 20 men and women of all different nationalities and they were all telling their story, which in the NA tradition you do, and it was being translated into French and I couldn't understand anything of it. But all the stories were on their faces so you could see the story and it went around the group and got to me and I said, oh, I'm Bill from Australia... And I said, English, English. And I said, no, I can't get you to England. And then for some reason, it all poured out. And I said, oh, I'm Bill from Australia and I've had two stuffed marriages, I said, and my kids have suffered and I feel awful and all of it. It just all poured out. And all these people, all these people, the, the, the forgotten people of the world, you know, the, the refugees, the drug addicts, the Muslims, all of those, they all stood up and they held me. They just held me and they gave me my life back. They gave me my life back. And I thought, how do I honour these people for what they've done for me? So I went back to England and I threw out all my clothes and I only wear black as, uh, to, to remind <laughs> myself that they gave me my life back. They gave me my life back. And they were the the bottom people of the world. And Jesus talks about that all the time. And I saw it. I saw it. And I'm forever grateful for what they did. Forever grateful. Forever grateful. How was it that people
0: who've come from such terrible situations, who've probably had some experience of horror in their lives, and if it's NA, they've probably had some addiction as well. How how was it that they were able to open their hearts to a man who comes from a, a wealthy and relatively safe place like Australia?
1: Because they have nothing to lose. You know, most of us fill our lives up with stuff, you know? So there's stuff we want to hold on to. I find it with the homeless a lot that they have nothing but their integrity. And so people who have got nothing can give you everything. You know, people who have got stuff will give you a bit depending on how much of the stuff they have that they don't want to give away, if you get what I mean. So that you, you, if you go to people who have got nothing, you'll get everything.
0: What did they give you? You said you felt changed and you threw out all your clothes and you're wear black now. What, what did they change in you, do you think?
1: They started me on a path saying to me deep, deep down that I was lovable. I could be loved unconditionally.
0: Why did you ever doubt that?
1: Probably it goes way back to my relationship with my father because um, I was born the apple of my mother's eye in lots of ways and he was away at the war... And then he came back and he wanted to be the apple of my mother's (laughs) eye. So I got pushed out and pushed down. And so I was always really struggling to find myself. That's the best way I can explain it. And I could never really live up to his expectations of what he wanted and what he wanted me to be. And my brother, who was born just afterwards... He was the apple of my father's eye. So, you know, if somebody had said to me, Bill, you were adopted, I would have thought, why haven't you told me earlier? (laughs) Uh And so I feel very, very close to people who feel like that, who feel unloved or unneeded or whatever, yeah.
0: Your first rule in your book is to cultivate lovingness and compassion. Now, I love talking about love on this program. For some reason, I don't do it nearly often enough. What, what is love to you, anyway? What is its main quality? Do you, for you, is it a kind of surrender?
1: Look, somebody rung me the other day, and I was saying, "All I want is for somebody to love me." <laughs> you know. Uh-huh. And I thought about that, and I thought, but the first thing you've got to do is love. You can't be like an empty vessel soaking up everybody else's love. Unless you give love, how can you receive it? It's a magic thing. It's connected to all that is and everything that is. And so many people talk about it being timeless and immediate at the same time. It's the glue that bonds us all together. It's the energy out of which all that is is created.
0: Every time I hear people talk of love, it's got, it's always expressed in terms of wonderful paradoxes. It's the surrender that makes you powerful. It makes you feel excited and relaxed at the same time.
1: Yeah. Years ago, I was involved with this famous couple who were trying to have a baby and it wouldn't come, you know, the baby wouldn't come. This is decades ago. And um, they tried everything and it all failed, all of that. And Then they decided to adopt. And, of course, the moment they signed the adoption papers, she fell pregnant sort of thing. And there was great rejoicing and all of that. They could never have another child after that, but they had the child. And at four months, it died in a cot death. And the mother was screaming down the phone to me early in the morning. The baby was still dead in the cot. She was destroyed and he was destroyed. They were... it was awful, awful. And I'm sitting with them and I suddenly realised right at this moment when everything was taken from them, at that moment, all they were talking about was love. She was talking about her mum and her dad and her brothers and her sisters and everybody who loved her and and she loved. And it was just, and I thought, how in this blackest of black, black, times. All you can talk about is love. It was like looking right into her soul and seeing like a tiny candle flame and the light of the love was penetrating the darkness, if you get what I mean. I can't explain it any more than that. It's just there. I do a lot of meditation and I find that at the moments of kind of supreme relaxation, I get transported into this nothingness and everything which is surrounded by a warm, glowing love. I, I can't explain it more than that.
0: One of the most interesting words in that rule of yours is the word cultivate. Cultivate lovingness and compassion. This is something to your mind that requires
1: thought and, and conscious effort to do this, Bill. It's doing It's doing. We talk a lot about things, but it's the doing of them. You can talk about love. You can talk about what love is and this and that and the other, but you actually have to do it. You actually have to reach out and love people. And sometimes that can be hard. It's kind of like you do it until it becomes, you do it over and over and over again. You do it. You just do it. Like... When I came to Ashfield here, there were basically 10 elderly ladies who all wore hats to church and called one another Miss. And most (laughs) of them were old maids, you know. And they became like my aunts. And I miss them every day. I miss them every day because we formed a bond that was really strong, you know, and I said, I'm never going to leave Ashfield until I buried all of you, you know. <laughs> and sure, there were, there were dramas now and then and different things, but we stuck together, all of us stuck together and um, a lovingness just grew, it just grew. It grows, if you look after it, it grows. I've got a plant in my office, you know, I had it in a little tin and everything and now I've put it in a, in a big pot and I've got some fertiliser in, in it and all of that and all of a sudden it's gone crazy, you know. <laughs> It'll take over my room soon <laughs> and love's a bit like that, you know. We get battered by life and we don't want to open ourselves up anymore and we want to shy away because what I've found is trauma can either break you or break you open. And you have to all the time allow trauma to break you open. And then you find a lovingness and a relationship, but it's doing it. It's not thinking about it. It's doing it.
0: As a man of faith, you be inclined I assume to see divine causes in love but of course an evolutionary biologist would have a much more boring explanation which would say well it's you know evolutionary biology you know humans have needed to band together to kill the woolly mammoth and feed the whole the, the whole tribe what do you make of that distinction how it is we humans love in the way we
1: love well obviously that's part of it that's part, but it's got to be there to be brought to life it's it's obviously there. It's inherent in creation itself. It's just there. And and evolutionary biology is in lots of ways discovering what we human beings can be. and And in lots of ways, in all the battles and all the traumas that's gone on since the beginning of humanity, in a way, love must always just win because we're still here. <laughs> if <laughs> hatred or or negativity or destruction was winning, we human beings wouldn't be here.
0: You've dedicated your book to your friend, the Dalai Lama. Oh, yeah. And he likes to talk a lot about the Buddhist concept of compassion, which is a really specific thing. He talks about it as a kind of love without attachment is the way yeah. uh, a Buddhist would describe it. Now, I think the Dalai Lama is the real deal. I did this event with him in public and I was sitting next to him on the stage with this huge crowd and I saw him do the most amazing thing, Bill. A woman came up to ask him a question about getting over various disabilities she'd suffered from in an accident. And as she began, as she was asking him the question, she became a bit overcome. And I was sitting right next to him. No one else could hear this, but I could just hear him go, oh, 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 oh no, 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 oh, 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 like that. And he just put down his microphone and walked right up to her and she sort of embraced him and he went with the embrace And no one else could see this except me and the other texts on stage, but this woman just had this incredible expression on her face, like she'd been able to let go of so much pain just in that embrace from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Do you you talk about such things, about love and compassion and what they mean when you're with him,
1: Bill? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I love that man. The, the thing about him is he's, he, like you say, he's the real deal. And um, you just sit there and um, I was with him just before the pandemic. We were sitting in Daramsala and um, we, we looked in each other's eyes because I, I talk a lot about that. I said, look in, we looked in each other's eyes and I said, did you notice um, we both vanished and went somewhere? And he goes, yeah. And I said, well, I think that's what Jesus was talking about with the kingdom. And he goes, oh. (laughs) And he um, grabbed this lackey and he made this lackey because it was just him and me and a lackey, you know. And he got this lackey to go downstairs and come back and he had this beautiful crystal obelisk, beautiful. And he got a black pen and he drew a cross on the, I'm looking at it now, he drew a cross on the obelisk and he gave it to me, and he said, um, "Take this as a gift from the Holy Spirit." You know, <laughs> and it's it's just beautiful. And on it, there's the little black cross he drew with his texter on the crystal. And he knows. He knows. That's all I can say. So I was talking with Father Bob once, and he, him and I, we were talking in melbourne and he said bill we've been to the mountaintop (laughs) whatever that means and the dalai lama has too
0: (laughs) you talk about that couple that came to you after their child died and i suppose that illustrates the risks of love the the risks you open yourself up to with that but what are the risks of not cultivating loving
1: attachment to other people you end up like Scrooge McDuck, <laughs> <laughs> sitting, in a, sitting in a bath with all your coins and all your stuff and thinking that's all it is. I remember Rennie Rivkin once said to me, he who dies with the most wins. That was his philosophy, you know. And I couldn't help thinking, what a sad, sad life. Sad life. So many of the people who are really wealthy that I know are, are as sad and as traumatised as everybody else. They might be more comfortable than anyone else, but their lives aren't any better.
0: Love can be overpowering too. Like uh, I'm thinking of the kind of terrible arguments people who love each other get themselves into. And there's, there's a wonderful line by a, an Irish playwright called Hugh Leonard who, who said, It was a long time before I realised that love turned upside down is love for all that the terrible things we say might be a form of love turned upside down. What do you think, Bill, when it comes to that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like what you said a few minutes ago, love is a risk. It's a risk. And it's a risk you have to take. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But it can't stop you. But it just is. It oozes out of life. The thing I've learned is going to the blackest spots on the earth, the small loving acts are highlighted, whereas in the world itself, when you're living, say, in Australia and that, um, these countless acts, loving acts are going on all the time, but we don't recognise them, you know? We recognise them when, say, in the Holocaust, somebody saves someone from the... The chamber or somebody does something or or some it stands out. You you recognize it there, but what we then fail to see is it's going on everywhere at every moment.
0: When there is something like the Holocaust that takes place, do you see that as an absence of love or the presence of something wicked?
1: Uh, (sighs) Oh, I brought a young boy over from Afghanistan a long time ago and we saved his life, you know, a couple of decades ago. Saved his life we did, and the operations he needed were long and arduous and, you know, 14-15 hour operation. And we'd managed to get him to Australia by miracles, by a course of, by miracles that were going on. We got him here and got his life saved. And as he went into the operation nobody knew if he'd come out the other end alive. And I went into the church and I lit every candle, every candle I could find, and it was fourteen hours for the operation. And you know, I'd invested so much in it. I rang a friend of mine, Shirley Maddox, the minister. And I said, Look, he can't die after all these miracles. He can't die. God's been there and he's here with all these miracles going on. He can't die. And she said, Bill, if he dies, God will be with us in the grieving. Mm. (laughs) And I just see that. I just see this story of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, you know. It's just life. It's the way life is. All that is partners with us. In our sorrows and our joys. (laughs) But ultimately, behind all that is a huge loving presence. That's the only way I can explain it.
0: You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. second rule in your book, Bill, is really interesting. It's trust in a higher power. Just trust. That's what you're saying. When you say a higher power, do you mean God or are you talking about perhaps someone's best self? What do you mean?
1: Well, Thomas Merton said um, the search for God is really the search for yourself. And that's true because the more you find yourself, the more you can give yourself away And the more you find, as you give yourself away, you find there's a higher truth and a higher uh, something. (laughs) Call it that. The Jews never used a name for God because it was too awesome to talk about. And I kind of um, use all that is in lots of ways. I use a euphemism like that because um, words can be so limiting. I have found if you trust things happen. You have to start walking into the universe. If you start walking into the universe, it comes back at you in different ways. That's what I always try to do. A lot of times I try to tempt the universe by walking into it, if you know what I mean, and seeing what comes back. Because um, you never know. You never know. Unless you walk into it, you never know. You, you open yourselves up. And so many times people are afraid of saying yes to things because something might happen. Oh, Bill, you can't say yes to that. If you say that, you'll be inundated with people. Well, I've never been inundated with people yet. <laughs> you know? Oh, you can't give all this food away for free. You'll, they'll all come. But we've never run out of food. A lot of what we believe in life are lies. The more we just adopt a trusting attitude and move into it, the more amazing things come back and um, and move you on. That's what I've found over and over again. You have to be open to life and walk into it. So many people close themselves off and so deny themselves an opportunity to discover what, really is and what really is is so much different to the lies society tells us it is
0: you mentioned your younger brother who was the apple of your dad's eye yeah and he died when he was a young man still what did that do to your father's trust in things trust in the way of the world
1: when my brother died every photo disappeared was taken off the walls and his name couldn 't be mentioned for thirty years and um oh, dear i don 't know how my mum coped i don 't know, but um his first things to me he used to say, "Bill, a quid's your best friend don 't trust anybody you know man 's best friend is his dog, all of that sort of stuff because he 'd gone through the depression in England and he 'd gone through World War two, all of that, so he'd really had terrible things thrown at him um for a long time, I used to wish it had been me that had been killed because if I was killed, it wouldn't have had such a devastating effect and that took a long time to work through. It was devastating, just devastating to have the apple of your eye taken from you in such a cruel way and in lots of ways he never recovered from that.
0: I sometimes think that men are generally more brittle in those situations. Oh, yeah they're more likely to shatter than, than women are. Have you seen people who who have been through something like that but at your church or at the Wayside or at Ashfield who've been able to still trust in things and still walk forward into the
1: world? Yes, but it takes opening yourself up. It takes... It. There's a lady I work with, Mahbuba, Mahbuba's Promise, you know. She came to Australia as a refugee from Afghanistan when the Russians were going on and she escaped from the Taliban and all of that and um, she got to freedom and then they were down at the blowhole at Kayama and there was something went wrong and there was a freak wave and her husband and some of her children died and in order to stay alive she dedicated herself to bringing life to women and girls in Afghanistan (laughs) The only way out of all this misery is to actually um, open yourself up to more loving, which opens yourself up to more pain. But it kind of, it doesn't take things away, but you learn to live with it because there's a loving in in your relationships that sustain you. It's what people who have everything stripped away from them, everything, kind of realise that, Unless I get out there and start loving, I'm, I'm gone. I'm gone. I'm as bad as what's happened to me. I think that's the only way I can describe it.
0: When you do know people who can't go forward after something like that, people who are stuck on what you call the bridge of clinging on, how do you help them across that bridge of clinging on? What's the best way to do that, you've found, Bill?
1: Just sit. One of the best things is just to sit with people. Just sit. Sit in the uncomfortableness. Don't try and take it from them. Just sit with them in it. Like what, what Shirley Maddox was saying to me about God, God will be with us in the grieving. Be with them in the grieving. Be with them. Sit there. Be with them in the, the awfulness that's going on. Just be there. Don't take it away from them. Don't put it in yourself yourself. Be with them in their grieving. It's very difficult. There's a lot I wrote right about the difference between sympathy and empathy. And sympathy is like when someone breaks a leg and you say, oh, I know the pain because I've broken my leg, you know. Empathy is actually when you sit with them and you say, your leg would be really hurting you, which lets them know you understand how they're feeling, not that you're feeling your feeling and they must be feeling what you feel because that's all you know. This
0: this is a kind of a compassion trap and I think the Dalai Lama's talked about this as well. Sometimes the immediate human response when someone suffered a catastrophe is to go, oh, you feel the the empathy and the empathy makes you feel t- sad and terrible. And then you get angry with the person for making you feel that way. And so you then offer them a whole bunch of, um, uh, I don't know, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? You've got to get up and you've got to change this. Uh, so, so that if you, ch- you'll, you'll make things better for yourself and I'll feel better about myself. Yes. When you when you're dealing with someone though, who's been stuck in that place for 10 years after the trauma, can you still sit with them or do you have to do something else for them?
1: They have to do it for themselves they have to make that first step into the universe. When you make that first step, you don't know what's going to come back at you. And um, that's, that's what I mean. Often it comes back in ways that can lead to your healing or not curing but healing. Healing is a, a whole of, of soul experience, you know, physical, mental and spiritual and, and curing is the physical side. They have to do it. Like with alcoholics or drug addicts, you know, they may have to come to that point 50 times and then on 51 times, um, that's when it will sink in. You know? I suppose the thing is trust that ultimately they will find the way. If you sit with them in that trust, ultimately many do. Because often people will say things to me. They'll say, oh, I came and saw you 35 years ago and you said this. And I think, did I? (laughs) And they said, it's only just sunk in.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here's another rule you've got in your book. Find a help group to share your growth journey with. Who has that been for you?
1: So many people. The first one was Dr. Bob Watton. (laughs) I've been doing psychotherapy for 40 years. He's been with me all that time. He's just had to retire, so I've got to find a new psychotherapist. (laughs) There's been him and another person I've got, John Graham, who um, I can be totally open and honest with and then the healing can come. I've seen it in 12-step groups. And uh, it was there I learned. It was there I learned that, Our lives are paralysed so much by secrets. We have all these secrets. We don't want people to know how crazy we are or how vulnerable we are, all of those sorts of things. And I was listening to this woman once and she'd come from a really wealthy family and good family, all of that. And she ended up one night in a public park in Ashfield shooting up heroin with public toilet water. And here she is, telling that to 100 people. And I thought, oh, that's brave. That is really brave. And then I realised it was just another story. Most of our secrets are just stories. <laughs> They're just stories. And yet they paralyse their lives. Awful, awful secrets. And all they are are stories. And that's my book. In that book are, are secrets that paralysed me for years, but they're just stories and then they lose their power over you and then you can begin to move on. That's, that's what I've learned, that, that so much of what paralyzes us needn't. <laughs> but when you wrote that
0: it's good to find a help group to share your growth journey with, you know what it reminded me of? In my 20s, I went to a few what was called Orphans Christmas Lunches on Christmas Day, and there were it was like a table full of people whose whose family were interstate, but also quite a few gay people whose parents disowned them. Now, you know, things are a lot better now, and that doesn't happen so often these days. But but nonetheless, what, what these gay people often told me, of course, gay friends had told me that they would made their own family with loving friends instead, this circle of friends that that did accept them. This is the kind of thing you're talking about here, isn't it? Making your own family if 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 you, if you need to.
1: Yes, and um, I remember. Um, Obama said something about one of the senators who died at his oration and he said we were lucky to have him walk beside us for a while. If you look on life as a journey, it's the people who walk beside you on the journey. They mightn't be the whole journey. They might just be a little bit of the journey. They might, you know, wander off on a side road or something sooner or later. But choose the people you want to walk with or who you, want, who you want to walk with you because they're the ones who can bring you wholeness at the moment where you're at. And I find that so often with people who have got nothing. They will give you everything, like I've said, and it's humbling, it's humbling to be there and it makes you really fight for them because... Um, they, they give you something that nobody else can give. One of your rules is don't be afraid of the truth. Yeah. It will set you
0: free. Now, I'm guessing this is don't hide from the not-so-pleasant places of this world. Is that
1: right? Yes. And r- look at the lies that society tells you. Look at those lies. Achievement is imp- important, all of those sorts of things. What, what I have learned since the book is that you can find who you are in a group. Looking in the eyes of one another, you can find who you are. And then you can filter out what you're not in meditation (laughs) because you can, if you're open and vulnerable and which we need to be in relationships and all that, we can float along with the group sort of thing. And it takes meditation to say, hey, I don't really want to go down that path. I want to go on this path or something. But you have to find out what those paths are before you can work out which ones you want to take.
0: But what I mean is about walking into the scary places of the world where you often walk to, like the jungle camp in Calais, like the areas of homelessness in uh, Sydney and elsewhere in the world. Yeah,
1: because you never know what you'll find. You find the most... Amazing acts of kindness and and gentleness and sharing and um, you know like like one of the things society always wants to do as soon as groups of homeless get together like in Martin Place they did the authorities move them on when it's a natural predisposition in us to congregate as people some of the most meaningful times I've had in my life is is sitting around a fire burning fire in the block in Redfern they used to they used to have a big fire and all the aboriginal people and other people used to gather around it and sit around it and tell stories and share and it was one of the most magic times of my life and in amongst that you'd have the stories of the stolen generation and the the police coming down and taking your kids and all of those sorts of things and so there'd be a lot of sadness as well, but there's a real camaraderie and they're the things you often don't get in what you call genteel society, you know, <laughs> you don't get that and, and it's, it's, it's life-giving, like, like I started off as an engineer in a sense, in a way dead in my soul, but searching, 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 searching. Um, and I found it to be not in the place anyone would expect it to be, (laughs) the place where people are told not to go. And so my natural reaction now is to go where I'm kind of told not to go because that's where you'll find things.
0: Churches can often be quite genteel places, Bill. Has that been a problem for you with the church in the
1: past? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Particularly with people who use church to justify their own (laughs) self-righteousness. Oh, gosh, yes. I think in the churches I've found the most wonderful people and some of the biggest bastards you can imagine. (laughs)
0: here's another one of your rules, which is do who you are. What do you mean by do who you are, Bill?
1: Well, if you believe in freedom, do it. If you believe in equality, do it. If you believe in, you know, we're all in this life together, do it. If, if you call it out, if, if the things you don't believe in are happening in your environment, Call it out, and you don't have to call it out in a confrontational way. You can just do it. Say, "I don't go along with that," or you have to do who you are. You're not just a lonely person sitting around who can't change the world or anything like that. You can. You might be able to change the world, but you can change the world for another person. A lot of this sounds like cliches, (laughs) because it's been said over and over and over again by all the major religions. What do they all say? Give it up, give it up, give it up, give it up, give it up. Listen to the wind in your soul. All the religions say those sorts of things. It's all there. We don't have to invent anything new. It's all there. (laughs) And it's been said for thousands of years.
0: I'm going to go back to compassion again. St. Paul always talks about love being like a garden. It's ever ever flourishing. It just grows. And you mentioned that, some, something along those lines yourself. Yeah. But then other people say, and I think there's truth in this, that there's only a quantum of compassion in human beings. There's only so much we have. And then it sort of runs out. Like courage is the same way as well. You You can have a lot of courage and then one day you find it's just run out. What do you think, Bill? Do you think we... Uh, is love and compassion ever flourishing or do we only have so much of it and then we then we have to wait another couple of years before our tank fills
1: up again? I think I think we can be signs. That's what I've learned. We can be signs. We don't have to do it all the time, but we can be signs so that other people can do it so it's done all the time. I was hoping when I was younger I could change the world. But... Maybe I can be a sign that the world can be different and then other people can take it on. Ted Noss, who was my mentor in a lot of this, he was a sign. His sign spawned me and other people and hopefully I and those other people spawn others.
0: But have you experienced that compassion fatigue yourself? Have you had days where you felt, I have nothing more to give, I'm sorry, I'm just exhausted?
1: Oh, Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But then you can come back to it later. You have to look after yourself as well. Because people come to me all the time and say, Oh, I want to do what you do, I want to do this and I want to do that. And I say, Well it's hard work. It's hard work and it's lonely work and it's it's stressful work and you'll have your insides ripped out and all of this and they wander off and they think, I don't want to do this. I've seen the beauty in life, mate. I've seen the beauty. I've seen that at the core of all it is, there's a wonderful lovingness. And I've seen how we human beings stuff it all up. I've seen it. But nevertheless, behind all of that, that lovingness still exists. I think that's what replenishes me, I think. Like... I had that experience in King's Cross years ago, which I haven't talked about here. Tell me about
0: that experience, Bill. What what experience are you talking about here?
1: Well, I was still a research engineer at AWA and through a series of events ended up at the Wayside Chapel in King's Cross and I ended up on the streets with all the homeless kids and all of that. And um, I was working at AWA doing research and spending all my spare time working with kids and people in trouble and one day I was coming up to run the Wayside Traveled coffee shop and I was walking up the stairs and I got to the landing and it was like time stood still. There was just a bang and there was like a voice. It wasn't a voice, it was a knowing. And it said, you've got to leave your job, you've got to come and work here, you've got to work with the poorest of the poor, the work will be long and hard and arduous and don't worry about that and you'll become well-known but don't worry about that. Oh, and by the way, your personal life won't be that happy. You know? And that's how I knew it was true. And so I went and resigned and my dad freaked out and that at times sustains me, that voice which says... You know, it's going to be tough and suck it up. I think at times that voice sustains me. You've
0: been talking about your dad and how stung you were by how you weren't able to live up to his expectations in life. How did you come round? How did you begin to remember his moments of loving kindness with you, Bill?
1: Well, it took a bit of working through my anger at that and my pain at that because you know, I still for a long time half believed it and I still kind of do too that I'm not good enough or I'm not this or I'm not that. See, when when I left and went through he said, oh, I'm ashamed you're a cruise. And then somebody the other day said to me, but you brought such honour to the name. And I think, oh, have I?
0: <laughs> Why couldn't he see that in you? I don't get that. I, I, don't, understand, I don't see that. Why couldn't he see that you'd brought honour to the family
1: name? I've not, because I didn't live the way he wanted because I wasn't a miserable bastard like
0: <laughs> well, So you refused to be a miserable bastard. But you said there's stories you tell yourself in that story. and Until you can figure out
1: that you need a better story, what was the better story you had about him? He did a lot for me. He did a lot for me. When I got down, he would sit and talk with me. There was more to it. And when I found out a lot of the stories of him and his brother when they were three years old on the streets of London... Um, collecting horse dung and selling it so his single mum could have money. When I actually went there and walked the streets he walked as a little kid, it kind of made it real, which is why I do a lot of work in England. So he'd been all this time
0: trying to get past the sting of his own alienation, the same sting you'd felt just from a different quarter.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. So did you need to forgive him, I suppose?
1: Well, when he died... I couldn't cry at his funeral and it took several years before I could and that was part of the forgiveness, I think.
0: Just finally, that camp at Calais, the jungle, what's happened to it since you
1: visited? Is it still there? (laughs) It's half there. The French authorities, um, they won't let it build up too much and then you've got the British trying to turn the boats around and all of those sorts of things and these poor buggers are left to struggle And it's funny because to go to the jungle as it was, you had to have an official pass. And you had these rows and rows of buses, as I said, with police in riot gear with guns. And I didn't have an official pass. So anyway, I went back with my friend and we looked up Google (laughs) and we found a, a poster which was official pass. So I printed out the poster and... Laminated it and came back and said, There's my official pass, and they let me in. <laughs> that are the lies that society tells. You know? <laughs> but a very big, loving experience happened for me from those people, which has changed my life and changed many others' lives. And yet a lot of the French authorities look on them as cockroaches. And they gave me my life back, like the kids did in King's Cross.
0: Bill, what a joy it is to speak with you. Thank you so much, Bill.
1: Thank you. Mm. Thank you, thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations
0: with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au/slash conversations.
1: Hi, I'm Molly.
0: And I'm Carl.
1: And we're the hosts of the kids' podcast, Short and Curly.
0: Each of our episodes tackles a curly question about the world.
1: Like, should we try and bring back extinct animals? Is it your fault if your room is messy? And is it ever okay to lie? Plus, we have a lot of fun along the way. Well, we make a lot of fun of you, Carl. Oh. It's a podcast to get the whole family thinking and talking. Short and curly. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.